It is important for everyone to understand that fiber is an essential nutrient. And there are people on the internet who will make the claim fiber is not essential for human health. And that is based upon them not seeing nutritional value that is direct to humans. But guess what is valuable to humans? A healthy gut microbiome. A healthy gut microbiome plays a critical role in your digestion, in your immune system, your metabolism, your hormones, your mood, your brain health. This is critical to human health. We need healthy microbes, and our microbes, they need fiber. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world, like Serbia, home of the plant-based tennis champion, Novak Djokovic. Also, the Dominican Republic, Egypt, Greenland, and the Faroe Islands. Appreciate you all helping us make the world a healthier place and making the exam room one of the most consumed nutrition podcasts anywhere today. This is episode 83 of season four, number 278 overall. And this one is all about your questions and getting a healthy dose of fiber. Today's top question, in fact, how much fiber do you actually need? Well, it is a fact that just one out of 20 people are getting enough fiber in their diet. Only one out of 20. As for the other 19, can you say cranky? So how much fiber should you be eating every day? Well, our good friend and author of the best-selling book, Fiber Fueled, Dr. Will Bolsowitz is back with the answer that is sure to clear your back up like it's the end of rush hour. Our chat was from this week's edition of The Exam Room Live, and that means that we also opened up the doctor's mailbag for Dr. B to answer even more of your questions. So we have one in there about organic versus non-organic and whether the gut can tell a difference. We also have one in the queue about dehydration causing constipation and another one about turmeric possibly alleviating it. And then someone is also asking why apples always make them poop. Plus, after we close up the mailbag, we get answers to those questions and a lot of others. I have details on a new study on mushrooms and mental health. There are some promising findings that could lead to help for those who are struggling with depression. But before we get to that, let's get fiber fueled with the king of fiber, the prince of poop, Dr. Will Bolsowitz on The Exam Room Live. Thanks so much for being here, man. It is so good to see you again. It is so good to see you too, Chuck. The greatest introduction that I've ever heard in my life, the king of fiber, the prince of poop. I am. I'm more than honored to be here, and I um, am excited to dig into some questions so you guys don't be bashful. Submit your questions through the chat box. And, you know, real quick, Chuck, before we start, there were two statistics that you brought up that jumped out at me as you were leading into uh, our show today. One is that this show is downloaded by uh, people within 120 countries around the world. That is amazing. And, you know, the internet. There's a lot that's not good about the internet, but this is one of the things that is good about the internet is that we can have a conversation. We can try to enrich people's lives. We can try to educate, give them rock solid information, and it can spread throughout the world. Just this conversation that we're having today, that's a beautiful thing. And the second thing is that you said one in 20 people are not consuming enough fiber. And I wrote the book on fiber and I'm sitting there and I'm like, one in 20. One in 20, geez, that sounds horrible. And then I'm like, oh, hold on. That's like literally what I wrote in my book. 95% of us are not getting an adequate amount of fiber in the United States. And so I'm glad that we're going to talk about this because even to me, that number sounds absurd. And I literally used that statistic in my book. Yeah, it, it is an enormous amount when you think about, I, I mean, so yeah, the 5% of, of, of the population gets enough fiber. 95% does not. And that's where the one in 20 comes from. And right. when I saw that too, I was like, whoa, 
there are a lot of people missing out on perhaps what is the most important nutrient in the diet. So let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit of fiber. And that leads us to Dr. B. Today's first question comes to us from Scarlett. She's wondering how much fiber do we actually need every day? She says that she's seen various numbers. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me start with this. It is important for everyone to understand that fiber is an essential nutrient. And there are people on the internet who will make the claim fiber is not essential for human health. And that is based upon them uh, not seeing nutritional value that is direct to humans. But guess what is valuable to humans? A healthy gut microbiome. A healthy gut microbiome plays a critical role in your digestion, in your immune system, your metabolism, your hormones, your mood, your brain health, um, even the way that you express your genetic code. This is critical to human health. We need healthy microbes and our microbes, they need fiber. We were just talking about 95% of us are not getting even the minimal recommended amount of fiber per day. So what is that? What is that amount of fiber? It's based upon your caloric intake. So the recommended amount is 14 grams of fiber per 1000 kilocalories per day, okay? That's the recommended amount. Now, to put this in the context, the average American is getting somewhere in the range of 15 to 18 grams of fiber per day. So if we were consuming 1,000 kilocalories per day, we would be we would be good. We would be getting in the adequate amount, like the minimal amount, okay? We are not. We are consuming substantially more than 1,000 kilocalories per day because that's what our bodies need to properly fuel and energize us. Um, I'm not recommending that we reduce the amount of calories that we take necessarily. I'm recommending that we increase the amount of fiber. The recommended amount for most women is somewhere around 25 grams of fiber per day. And for most men, it's about 38 grams of fiber per day. But there's a caveat. Yes, I want you to get enough fiber. But this is not about picking up the orange stuff at the store, stirring it into a drink and drinking that three times a day and then calling it a day. That's not what this is about. Dietary fiber. Dietary fiber comes from plants, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. When you hear that we have a horrible fiber deficit in the United States of America, and by the way, this is most Western countries, so it's not, you know, if you're in the UK, if you're in Australia, you should be listening to me too. Not only do we have a huge fiber deficit, we're not eating enough plants, enough fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. And so the solution to this is quite simply to eat more plants and to eat them in abundance and variety. We want as many different varieties of plants as possible. And so here's what I say, stop counting grams of fiber, start counting plants. If you make that a focus at every meal, if your emphasis is how do I get more plants into this bowl, onto this plate, into this soup, if you make that your goal with every single meal, you will eat more plants. You will get the minimal recommended amount of fiber and you will get it from the most healthy sources that exist, which are the things that grow in the soil on the ground. Man. You are truly fiber fueling us. That is a, a fantastic answer. And you're giving it to people. We have uh, Keith, who's watching us today from Scotland, making a global impact. So hello, Keith. Uh, also, uh, Birgit, who's watching us in Germany. We have Paul, who's in uh, Bracebridge, Ontario, as well as uh, Sabibi from uh, Mississauga, Ontario. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. So thank you guys very much for raising your health IQs with us from around the world. Um, so we talked about fiber being really good for you. And obviously we know that that's great for making sure that you're not constipated, but what about if you're not getting enough water every day, if you're not drinking enough fluid, can that also back a person up? Uh, it, it certainly can. It certainly can. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that. So, all right, you called me the Prince of poop. Here we go. I'm going in guys. Let's talk about some poop. Uh, so we want what we want okay what i want for all of my patients and this is how i literally spend my days chuck is i want people to have good complete evacuations on a regular basis all right that's the way that it's supposed to work we're supposed to be having good healthy 
complete bowel movements so that we can empty our colon. All right. And the inadequacy of those bowel movements, whether it is not frequent enough or whether it is that you are not completely emptying is what leads to constipation. For us to be successful in keeping things in a rhythm and moving things downstream, we got this log, it's our poop. We got this log and we got to float that log down the river. All right. Don't let it get dried up on the rocks, my friends. Float that log down the river. Make sure you're drinking enough water and that will happen to get good, complete, regular bowel movements. Outstanding. Uh, also want to say hi to William, who's checking in in Ireland. Thanks for being here, William. Um, let's go ahead and take this question then from Celeste. So we talked about dehydration causing constipation. Celeste is wondering whether a certain spice can help cure it. She's wondering about turmeric and if you are familiar with that at all being good for curing constipation. So I love turmeric. I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of turmeric and I actually have seen great benefit to turmeric for anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, I used it in my own father when he had bad osteoarthritis of his knees and he had great benefits from this. This can be used as a replacement for ibuprofen. And by the way, if you are going to do this, make sure that you get a sprinkle of black pepper in there because black pepper activates the uh, phytochemical which is the active component of the turmeric called curcumin, all right? So you get more curcumin when you add black pepper to turmeric. Think about curry, kind of cool. All right, when it comes to constipation, turmeric would not be my first choice. I do love turmeric, but not specifically for constipation. When it comes to constipation, my first choice, if I'm given one, whether it be a spice, an herb, a mineral, a vitamin, I'm rolling with magnesium. Magnesium would be my first choice. Magnesium helps to draw water into the colon, right? Again, we want to float that log down the river. So magnesium helps to accomplish that. And it helps you to maintain that regularity that we're looking for where we get those good, complete evacuations. There are many different forms of magnesium. It's important to know which one is the best choice. And for most of my patients who have constipation, I will opt for magnesium oxide. That is the one that I will choose because it is not absorbed very much. So it's a great choice because it stays inside the intestines, pulling water in with it. You can also use magnesium citrate or magnesium sulfate if your goal is to treat constipation. But magnesium is also good for headaches, for mood, for sleep. This is why most of the time I recommend taking it before bedtime. And if you want it specifically for those things and not for bowel movements, then you can opt for something like magnesium glycinate. And that is really good for mood, for headaches, and for sleep. All right, so you, you're prescribing magnesium, but have you ever prescribed apples? Nancy is not the first person that I've heard uh, ask this question. She wants to know, why do apples make me poop? I have to go every single time I have one. Yeah. And there may be things, thank you for that question, Nancy. There may be things about Nancy specifically that are relevant to her unique individualized response to the apples. But let me start just speaking globally about the apples and we can kind of zoom in a little bit on perhaps what may be happening with Nancy. Apples are a wonderful source of fiber not to be not to be under recognized we have to look at this and say look this apple you know we've heard eating an apple a day keeps the doctor away it does because it's a great source of fiber it's a great source of polyphenols which by the way are great for the gut microbiome which help to maintain intestinal motility it's a great source of believe it or not probiotics the apple has a microbiome in fact, they've estimated that each apple has about 100 million microbes, mostly bacteria, living in and on the apple, not just on the skin, but actually inside the apple too. So if you're looking for probiotics, this is a potential source. You can consume an apple and because it's a living food, it has, you will actually be consuming the apple's microbiome and that could interact with your microbiome. All right, so these are all parts of the apple that may be beneficial when it comes to maintaining a healthy gut. And when we have a healthy gut, we would be having healthy bowel movements. But there's one other part to this, which is that there are some people who are more sensitive to fructose. Fructose is a sugar. 
when you find fructose in native foods, whole foods, that's it's a healthy part of this entire combination of things that's in that food. It's not to be feared. Now, naturally, we hear about fructose when it's in things like high fructose corn syrup, which is an ultra processed food. None of us know how to make that because it's made in some sort of chemical plant. All right. So, but when you eat an apple, it does contain fructose. And for some people, that fructose will actually stimulate them to move their bowels. And that may be a unique thing to Nancy specifically, but I'm, Nancy's not alone. She's not like one in 10,000 here. This is a very common thing that there are people that when they consume fructose, which you'll find in many fruits, it may stimulate them to have a bowel movement. So you mentioned that uh, the apple also has uh, some good probiotic factor in it. And that leads us to a great question from Ebony. She's wondering what other foods contain natural probiotics? All living foods, oh, you know, let's, let's start with this. <clears throat> microbes, they were here way before us, okay? There were microbes on this planet before oxygen came to this planet. And microbes are everywhere. They are everywhere. Uh, on my thumb right now, there are as many microbes as there are people in the UK, literally right there. And it's not just us as humans, it's not just our microbiome, but all life on this planet has a microbiome. So I mentioned the apple has a microbiome, that apple has 100 million microbes. But any living food has a microbiome, it has microbes that come with it. So raw foods have microbes. And that is a healthy part of that plant. It is helping to facilitate and foster the growth and the enrichment of that plant just like our microbes are trying to do the same for us. So you can find this, you know, you can find uh, 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 microbes, probiotic bacteria on any living food. But if you want to amplify those microbes, then you turn towards fermented foods. So as an example, Chuck, uh, you know, we're starting to get into, I mean, here we are, it's the middle of October, depending on where you live. Like if you're in the Northern latitudes, we're in sauerkraut season now it's time to go get some cabbage. And it is so simple to make sauerkraut. The recipe is in my book, Fiber Field, if you're curious. But basically, you take a head of cabbage, you chop it up, you throw it into a mason jar with, with a brine, a sea salt brine, and you keep it covered for at least seven days. I like to push it more towards you know 14 or 21 days. It keeps getting better, it's like wine. But you just cover it up, literally, Chuck, you haven't added any bacteria. All you did was add salt water to this living food, the cabbage. But guess what? Living on the cabbage, resident, already there, are the microbes like Lactobacillus plantarum, which by the way is found in many probiotics. Lactobacillus plantarum is already there on the cabbage. And when you submerge it, these bacteria multiply, they create acid, the acid transforms the food into sauerkraut. That's why we have the sour taste, which I mean, I personally love, I think it's great. But in addition, they multiply. And so now what you've done is you've taken the living part of this cabbage, you have amplified it by creating the right conditions for it. And now you have a fermented food and fermented foods are quite clearly good for our gut. Let's take a question from Sherry's 41205. She's watching us today on YouTube. She says, I'm trying to eat more fiber at work for lunch. Are canned beans okay to eat every day? Definitely. Definitely. So um, do we need to buy, you know, our, our beans hard and then, you know, uh, boil them or use them and do a pressure cooker? No, that's not a requirement. I, I actually used most of the beans that I consume are canned beans. Um, they're not that expensive. They can be purchased organic. They're readily available. They have a long shelf life. And, uh, one of the keys, by the way, if you're getting canned beans is that the beans contain something called raffinose and raffinose is what causes us to get gas and bloating when we consume beans. And what's interesting about raffinose, pardon me for being a nerd, you guys, I'm going to nerd out a little bit here. But raffinose is what we call water soluble, which means that it will dissolve in water, which means that if you surround those beans with water, 
you can extract the raffinose and remove it from the beans to reduce the amount of gas and bloating that you get when you consume beans. So effectively, what I just told you is a simple tip. When you get a can of beans, rinse them. Rinse them multiple times and you will withdraw much of this raffinose and that will reduce the amount of gas and bloating that you get as a result of the beans. But the raffinose isn't necessarily, I mean, I'm not saying raffinose is bad. It's actually, it's actually quite good for us. It's good for our gut microbes. So there's a balance there. I'm just saying for people that are sensitive, this is a trick. Dude, nerd it out, man. You just drop those nuggets of knowledge on us. Like they're nothing, man. Like your brain must be just overfilled. Like, I don't know how much capacity you have, but I'm estimating it's at least 20% over mere mortals such as myself. Uh I just get excited to come and hang out with you, Chuck. And so I, I, that's, that's all I can say. I just get excited to be here, man, and hang out with these people, wonderful people that are here. Dude, we're so giddy that you're here too. And the uh, Global Health Tour is rolling on. Leafy is watching us in Japan. We have uh, Piano in Derby, UK. Grow in Norway. And then Barbara, Bronson, Florida. There you go, Love Barbara. It. Love Thanks it. For, for checking in. All right, so now uh, let's talk about organic versus non-organic. We have a question here from Nadia at 1209, wondering about pesticides in vegetables and fruits. And so we had another person write in, wondering whether the gut can actually tell a difference between organic and non-organic produce. Does that make a difference in terms of gut health? Uh, I, I believe that it does, Chuck. And it's a bit of a nuanced conversation. So, you know, but let me, let me, first start with the punchline. The punchline is that I recommend organic foods when possible. All right. And I, and I also recognize that there are some people that there's limited access to organic foods, which can occur for a number of different reasons, the cost of them, availability at your local market, et cetera. Um, there's a number of issues there. And like, I'm not saying that it is unhealthy to eat plants that are not produced organically. Okay. So just to be clear, plants of any variety is what you want to eat, whether they are organic or they are not organic. But given the choice between the two, I clearly will take organic. And there's a number of reasons why. I'll walk you through them real quick. Number one, when it comes to benefits for human health, there is emerging evidence that indicates that consuming organic is better for us. And this includes studies that have looked at large populations where they have shown that uh, there is a reduced likelihood of developing specific can cancers, particularly lymphoma, among populations who consume organic instead of inorganic fruits and vegetables. Okay, this has been shown in several countries now, which adds to the strength of the evidence. When you're seeing the same pattern, but from different places, it really makes you think there may be something there. So, but it's not just lymphoma, it's also our gut and our gut microbes. And one of the benefits, one of the major benefits from my perspective, when it comes to consuming organic, is that this is one of the ways that you can reliably know that your food was not treated with glyphosate. Glyphosate is a chemical that is used basically as a weed killer. If you've ever used Roundup in your yard, that's what glyphosate is mixed with other chemicals. Glyphosate is used to kill weeds. It's used to kill stuff, right? And guess what it does to gut microbes? It kills them. And that is my concern with consuming non-organic produce or non-organic food is that they may be treated with glyphosate. And glyphosate is one of the chemicals which can be problematic when it comes to their effect on our gut microbes. So, but I also think, Chuck, just, you know, I feel compelled to say this, that I think it's very important for us in 2021 to be conscious and thoughtful about our choices beyond just whether or not it's good for me, right? So I am saying that eating organic is good for me and that's good for your health. And as your doctor or as a doctor, I care about that. But I also think that we need to think about our choices more broadly and the effect that it has on the entire planet. And I worry about the tons and tons and tons of glyphosate that are being sprayed onto the soil and are not easily removed and taken away. And we don't know what the effect is of that on soil health. But what we do know is that when you spray a field with glyphosate and then you look downstream at the watershed areas, 
downstream, there is a 40% loss of diversity in those watershed areas. You are killing ecosystems with these chemicals. So I worry about the choices that we're making with regard to our farmer farming practices. I don't know that there's a perfect way for us to produce food for 8 billion people. There are challenges that we have no matter what. But I do think that those choices, we may pay the price in the long run in terms of the effect that we have on the planet. And this is part of the argument in favor of organic. One last thing real quick, Chuck. There are many things. People think that it's just produce that we're talking about, and it's not. It's not. There are many different foods that have a long shelf life that can be purchased very inexpensively organic. And so a quick example is sprouts. You can get the sprouting seeds, the sprouting legumes, have them in your house, buy them in bulk, and for literally 25 cents worth of sprouts, you can create from a half of a cup of legumes of lentils, for example, half of a cup of organic lentils probably cost 25 cents. And it turns in three days into four cups of lentil sprouts. Anyone can do that. It's delicious. It's nutritious. It's not expensive. And so this is the type of thing that I'm talking about if you live in a food desert. Yeah, it's whether you live in a food desert or you live in just a major metro area where everything is just kind of available readily, so easily, um, it is important to remember that it doesn't need to take all of your money to eat a healthy diet. I always tell the story about going downstairs at the studio and uh, with Lee Crosby, uh, the fiber queen in this case. Uh, she and I went down to this little boutique grocery store in Washington, D.C., major city. So, you know, the prices are going to be a little bit higher. Plus, you add that with the boutique store, prices are way up there. But we were able to fill a an entire shopping cart with enough groceries to feed two people for an entire week for right around $40. I mean, we filled that cart all the way up, and that was as healthy of a diet as it gets. And uh, tell me who can eat uh, for an entire week, two people, for about $44. It's, yeah, pre it's pretty insane. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and it's important for people to bear in mind that I think one of the things we get lost, you know, that we lose sight of is that the healthiest populations on the planet have a diet where the backbone of their diet, like the majority of their calories, is coming from whole grains and legumes, that combination, right? And then you can add to that, right? You can add the fresh produce to that, but you start with the backbone of beans and rice or something like that. And that's not very expensive and it can be purchased organic and it has a long shelf life and you can get it off the internet if you need to. You know what I've been eating a lot of recently is something so simple. It's just uh, brown rice, black beans, kimchi on top man and i'm just i'm in seventh heaven man it's so good um, i have a two ingredient salad that i like chuck sorry not to interrupt you but just real quick and this is like for everyone at home so easy and it's like i'm convinced this is the healthiest the healthiest two ingredient salad that you could ever create and that is quite simply i create i get a big like huge ball of broccoli sprouts and by the way sprouting broccoli sprouts at home is not that difficult all right. I'm more than happy to teach anyone who's interested. I have Instagram lives where I've taught this. Get a big ball of broccoli sprouts and then throw a large dollop of, uh, of sauerkraut, fermented sauerkraut on top. And it's kind of cool because broccoli sprouts by themselves are, are quite bitter. And that is because they're so good for you and they're fighting cancer. But when you combine them with the sauerkraut, the sauerkraut is juicy and it, they just kind of mix together. And it's actually quite delicious and um, and good for you. So something to think about, guys. I can get on board with that. I do enjoy some sauerkraut. That always had a good flavor to me. Always, always, always. Sprouts uh, and kraut. Sprouts and kraut, man. Uh, Aisha checking in says, uh, just got your book, Dr. B. Thank you so very much for sharing all of this knowledge. Three claps, emoji style. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Lance wants to follow up on the uh, black pepper and turmeric you were talking about. Uh, wondering how much black pepper do you need for a quarter teaspoon of turmeric? That one came in at twelve twelve. You don't need much. You don't need much. You need it's like literally it's not so much that the black pepper starts overpowering. If anything, the powerful part of what you're going to taste is going to be the turmeric and literally just a good sprinkle of the black pepper. You get what you need. Um, all right. Lewis has an interesting question. How does healthy gut bacteria help with diabetes? 
Uh, very, uh, they're very important. They're very important. And so this is a, I love this topic, Chuck, because um, it allows me to dig into some of the new science that's emerging when it comes to gut health and, um, and specific metabolic issues. So now, Chuck, you may know this, but the listeners at home may not know this about me. I'm on the scientific advisory board of a company called Zoe, and Zoe is about personalized nutrition. Now, I'm not here to promote Zoe, but the reason why I'm on the scientific advisory board is because I believe in the science and what they're actually doing. And they have published a number of different papers over the course of the last year in, in very, you know, I mean, literally the most prestigious journals uh, that are out there. And one of the findings from our research from Zoe is that your blood sugar response is dependent in a powerful way on your gut microbes. In fact, what we showed in our research through Zoe is that your blood sugar response is more dependent on your gut microbes than on your genetic code, which is quite fascinating to consider. And so what this means is that the gut microbiome is an opportunity, is an opportunity for us to shape the gut microbiome, make it be what we want it to be, and in doing so, take control of our blood sugar, take control of, of our blood sugar balance. And um, the, the way to do this, th there are a number of ways that this can be done. Of course, people can look into Zoe if they're interested. Uh, and if you do, by the way, um, do joinzoe.com backslash Dr. B and that way they know you came through me. But anyway, the, the way to do this, though, is number one, diet number one. And if you're looking for the methodology of how to get that done and take control of your blood sugar, I would recommend people read Mastering Diabetes. Mastering Diabetes is the book, New York Times bestselling book. I have it actually, I have it right here. Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbaro, Mastering Diabetes. If you're interested in this topic, blood sugar control, the best place to start is by changing the way that you eat. Plants are the way. And congratulations, by the way, to Cyrus, a uh, brand new father within the last uh, few weeks. So uh, happy fatherhood, my friend. It's true. Uh, Ness, Ness at 1213. Oh, boy, we always get this one. And it's so important that we talk about it every single time as well. Ness at 1213. Why am I always bloated and what can I do about it? Uh, it's a big topic, Ness. It's hard for me to completely answer the question based upon just this limited information that I have right now. So let me but let me start first by like, I guess, let me start with the lowest hanging fruit or give you what I consider to be the most important sort of tip that I can give. The, there are a number of causes of gas and bloating. It would take me, Chuck, we could do an entire session on this one day if you want to, because um, it would take me probably a half hour to really unpack this. But the number one cause of gas and bloating that I come across in my clinic, and remember, I, I work full-time as a gastroenterologist. The number one cause of gas and bloating that I come across is constipation. Hmm. And people don't necessarily equate the frequency or the completeness of their bowel movements with their gas and bloating. And some of them, many of them, they poop every day. And they go, but doc, I'm, I'm not constipated. I'm pooping every day. And so here's what I say to them. There's a couple important questions. Do you ever feel like it's an incomplete bowel movement? And they go, yeah, yeah. I mean, I poop every day, but it's, it's small and not much comes out. That person is constipated. All right. And then perhaps the most important question. Okay. And I want everyone who's listening here to pay attention because this is like, I'm amazed. And it also is like so mind blowing when, when I'm in the clinic with my patients and I ask them this and it just like is a revelation every single time. Okay. So the question is this, I first say, have you ever, do you ever have days? Do you have a really good bowel movement? And they go, yeah, doc, I, I, I will occasionally have a day where there's a really good bowel movement. Now here's the important question. How do you feel on those days? How do you feel? Like, do you feel like the gas and bloating is better? 
do you notice that your energy levels are up? That you don't have food intolerances, food sensitivities? That the nausea is gone? That you're able to eat more? That your appetite is better? How do you feel? And they will always say to me, oh my gosh, those are my best days. I feel so good. I got no gas and bloating. I have no food intolerances. I can eat whatever I want. There's no nausea. My energy levels are through the roof, right? Yeah, you know why? Because this person is constipated. They're not adequately emptying their colon. And if we can take that person, and this is like literally what I spend my days doing in my clinic, Chuck. If I could take that person and get them into a rhythm and get good, complete, effortless, and dare I say it, pleasurable bowel movements on a routine basis. If we get them to that place, guess what's going to go? The gas and bloating. It's gone. And they're going to be able to tolerate more food. And they're going to be able to open up their diet and not feel like they have to be restricted. And they're going to have higher energy levels. And they're going to feel like they're thriving again. And that's because at the end of the day, our body thrives on rhythm. And we need to get it into a rhythm to make it work right. Oh man, yeah. I always feel feel better when I'm I'm in sync. Same time, just set your set your uh, watch by it, man. Clockwork every single day, and always with a smile on my face. Uh, all right, final question here, Doctor B. Um, let's see if we can get Red Vegan some help. All right, so maybe there's something that you could offer advice-wise that would help them. Maybe they're not the only one who is experiencing this. If someone is in fact, 100% plant-based, whole food diet, drinks a lot of water, but still continues to be constipated. What can be done if only laxatives seem to help? Okay, cool. This is a issue that I run into all the time, all right? And I do think that it requires us having a little bit of conversation about the role of fiber. And then once I explain this, I'm going to explain to you how I approach this problem in my clinic, okay? so. First of all, I am, you know, you said that I am the king of fiber. All right. I love fiber. I wrote a book about fiber. It's probably the best selling book with fiber in the title in the history of the planet. But fiber is not simply put your foot on the accelerator and push as hard as you can. There is nuance to this. And fiber, we commonly think of as being the solution to constipation. But in some cases, it actually can become paradoxically the enemy. So let me let me explain this a little bit more. If you are locked up, all right, and you are not emptying your bowels, when you start consuming fiber, you are going to have that fiber sit inside your intestines and it is not going to move. And what happens as a result of this is that the gut microbes consume that fiber and produce methane gas. All right, so you get gassy and bloated. This is the reason why all my patients who have constipation, all of them have gas and bloating. We know objectively that a person who is constipated is going to produce more gas, but there's a problem. We also know Chuck from clinical research studies that methane gas slows motility. So you get constipated, which produces more gas, which slows motility, which makes you constipated, which produces more gas, which slows motility. And when you drop more fiber in there, if you don't disrupt this cycle and get things going, if you remain constipated, you actually are just pouring gasoline on the fire. The solution though, for the red vegan is not to stop being vegan, right? The solution is not to reduce your fiber. The solution is to get your bowels moving because fiber is the enemy when your bowels are in gridlock and not moving. But fiber is your friend when the bowels are moving and will help you to keep them moving. That's the place that we wanna get you to. So how do we do it? All right, well, let me explain to you guys the way that I talk to my patients about this. All right, this is literally, I say this like five times a day in my clinic. All right, imagine that you have a freight train okay now in this analogy your bowel movement is this freight train it's big it's heavy and right now it's sitting on the tracks and it's not moving because you're constipated all right we got to get it moving so when you have this freight train 
you have to do what? You got to shovel coal and shovel coal and shovel coal just to build the slightest bit of momentum and get it moving. All right. There's a lot of effort, a lot of energy that goes into this train to get it moving down the tracks. But once you get it rolling, you don't need to put in so much energy to keep the momentum going. So when we think about constipation treatment, we have to think about if you are super constipated, we need to jumpstart the bowels. All right, that's step one. And then after we jumpstart the bowels and things are moving again, then we need to maintain the bowels with daily therapy. We don't want to wait and do as needed. As needed is not a good idea for constipation because then you put yourself on a roller coaster where it's like constipated, diarrhea, constipated, diarrhea, constipated. All right. What we want is we want daily therapy that allows us to maintain that rhythm where things are moving through effortlessly and naturally. So now bearing in mind, and I know, Chuck, we always say this, but I'm just going to say it real quick. I'm not your medical doctor and I'm not giving you guys medical advice right now. I'm telling you and I'm educating you on this topic so that you can be an informed person. I'm trying to empower you, but you need to talk to your medical doctor about everything that I'm teaching you here today. That being said, the way that I will approach my patient is that I will have them first jumpstart their bowels. That is phase one. And typically I will do that with a bottle of magnesium citrate. All right. They drink a bottle of magnesium citrate. They have a couple different bowel movements. They have now gotten things moving. Now we have to move on to phase two. Phase two is let's keep it moving with maintenance therapy. We don't need everything that we did that we did in the beginning with the magnesium citrate. We can back it down and just have our little maintenance dose. And in that setting, we talked to Chuck earlier in the show about magnesium oxide. I will many times reach for magnesium oxide in my patients, 500 milligrams, start there once a day in the evening. And if you need to, you can titrate the dose. You can go up to 750 or up to 1,000. Now, from a practical perspective, I will check a magnesium level before I start this, and I will check a magnesium level after I'm done. That way, I know in the beginning, I know where the magnesium is, and at the end, I know where the magnesium is. And most of the time, what I find is that people are low on magnesium in the beginning, and they are right where they're supposed to be at the end. It's extremely rare for people to be too high on their magnesium if they're following this approach, but of course, you have to do this with your doctor. So, and in doing this, that helps to get things going, keep them in a rhythm, okay? And keep things moving through. This is the strategy that I use in my clinic. This is what I would recommend to the Red Vegan, uh, or at least I would consider talking to your doctor about. And, um, and then go from there. One last point real quick, Chuck. I am not a fan of stimulant laxatives. They, I am concerned that they create dependence, which means that your body will not function properly without them. And the ones that I'm talking about are Senna, Senecot, Smooth Move Tea, uh, uh, Cascara, Cascara Sagrada, and even Aloe Vera. I want people to be aware that if you're doing these things routinely, I personally don't think it's a good idea. There you go. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, we will end with a comment from Robert Simpson, all caps in the chat room, nothing better than a good poop. And you are darn tootin' there, Robert Simpson. Darn tootin' indeed. Uh, Dr. B, the Gut Health MD, that is where you will find him on the Instagram, at the Gut Health MD. And a uh, question for you, exam roomies, while you're still here, what are, you, what are you doing for the next, oh, I don't know, seven days? You feel like taking the free plant-fed gut seven-day challenge? You can do that over at theplantfedgut.com. Dr. B, what is included in your seven-day challenge? Well, the Sunday challenge is, is uh, kind of fun because it's completely free and it's a way for you to not only be empowered with information about how your gut works and here are some practical ways that you can actually enhance your gut microbiome, but everyone loves a good challenge. And so it's an opportunity basically to hear from me for the next week, step up to the plate, try different things out, see how your body feels, experiment and see where it takes you. So, and I, you know, Again, like, what do you have to lose? It's completely free. By the way, Chuck, uh, a week from yesterday, all right, so six days from now, I am hosting a educational webinar for people who have acid reflux. So I'm calling it Dr. B goes head to head with heartburn. 
I'm taking on the challenge of helping people to figure out not only how to optimize their body, how to prevent heartburn, how to control heartburn, how to come off of the medications that they use to treat heartburn. That's my goal. And we're doing that six days from now. So for more information on that, you can also go to my website, theplantfedgut.com. That's uh, October 19th. And I would imagine that acid reflux, heartburn, I mean, that's something that you work with a lot of patients on as well. Oh, it's huge. There's so many people and the, the most the most prescribed medications on the on in the United States right now are the proton pump inhibitors and you know things like uh, Nexium, Prilosec, Protonics, etc. And the the thing about it is that we're just putting a band-aid over the top of this problem and there's potentially consequences to the long-term use of these medications. It's not to say that there's no role for them. There is a role, but we need to be smart about the way that we approach this particular problem. And there are opportunities from a diet and lifestyle perspective to get control of your acid reflux. It's not just, you're not stuck. You don't, you're not forced to take something you don't want to take. So that's kind of the approach that I want to teach people. And people can sign up for that also at theplantfedgut.com? If you go to theplantfedgut.com, you can learn more there about my heartburn webinar. And um, if you have any issues or, or, or questions about how to do that, just reach out to me through Instagram. I'm more than happy to help. Fair enough. And we have links to everything uh, right in the episode notes, the show description, however you're watching or listening to this today, as well as a link to pick up your own copy of Fiber Fueled. Highly recommend it. No bookshelf should be without it. Dr. B, the gut health MD, the prince of poop, the king of fiber, my friend, it is truly a treat every single time you are here. So thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you as always for having me on. I always look forward to getting together with you once a month. And thank you to all the people who are here today hanging out with us. I thank you guys. I'm, I'm watching the comments here and I'm very grateful for y'all. Don't forget to join us for the exam room live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Set a reminder, mark your calendars right now. Join us then on YouTube and on Facebook because that is your best chance to ask the doctors your question. Or you can send it to me ahead of time. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Time now to head to the exam room news desk for details on a promising new study on mushrooms. Could mushrooms help with mental health? Indeed they can, say researchers at Penn State who studied more than 24,000 adults for over a decade. Their findings show those who ate mushrooms were less likely to have depression. They believe the antioxidant ergothionine is why. Lead researcher Jabril Ba says, quote, having high levels of this may lower the risk of oxidative stress which could also reduce the symptoms of depression. End quote. A significant mushroom mental health positive connection remained even after accounting for different diets, economic backgrounds, medication, and other illnesses. The study is published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. By the way, the white button mushrooms in particular also contain a decent amount of potassium, and that is believed to help with anxiety. And antioxidants such as ergothionine have also been shown to prevent several other mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, according to these same researchers. And come to think of it, we also did a show a while back where we talked about a study showing that mushrooms could help slow cognitive decline in older adults. So that was pretty cool too. And that means that these little fungi these little itty bitty fungi, they pack a huge health punch. And they're pretty versatile in the kitchen too. I mean, you can do so many things with them. You can saute them, you can chop them up in your salad, you can do a portobello burger, you can stuff them, you can do any number of things, really countless recipes to get you what you need to stay healthy. And now let's help someone else get healthy too. There are so many people who could use this potentially life-saving information that we talk about here on the exam room. Remember, only one out of every 20 of us are getting enough fiber in our diet. And as you heard today, that can lead to all kinds of major health problems. People living sicker, or even worse, dying younger. So let's help them out. 
And one of the easiest ways to do that is just by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast and wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star rating truly does help move us up the list of nutrition podcasts. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people who need this information the most to find it. And I want to thank you in advance for your help. And don't forget all of the links in the episode notes, everything we talked about today. And there's also one to make an appointment with the plant-based and nutrition-focused doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center. Telemedicine visits are available in much of the country and insurance is accepted. To schedule an appointment today, call 202-527-7500 or visit barnardmedical.org. That's 202-527-7500 or barnardmedical.org for a full list of states where services are available. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Mr. Fiber Fuel, the king of fiber, the prince of poop, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>